The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Squawkbox live from Warsaw and London as the world and of course Ukraine prepares to mark one year this week since the Russian invasion. These are your headlines. Quarterly pre-tax profit at HSBC doubles as China's reopening and higher interest rates boost revenue. The CEO, Noel Quinn, telling CNBC the outlook remains positive. We see our international franchise having good growth prospects in transaction banking, international wholesale banking, wealth management. That allows us to be confident about our 12% plus roti in 2023 and 2024 and beyond. So President Biden is back in Poland following a surprise visit to Kiev where he pledged more aid for Ukraine and a united front against Russia. This is so much larger than just Ukraine. It's about freedom and democracy in Europe. It's about freedom and democracy at large. President Joe Biden's historic trip to Ukraine ups the pressure on Vladimir Putin as the Russian leader prepares to justify his invasion in a national address later this morning. First half profits of BHP slump, prompting the miner to slash its dividend. But CEO Mike Henry issues a positive demand outlook for China. As the Chinese economy picks up, uh, we expect in particular towards the back end of this calendar year, uh, steel demand and iron ore demand to pick up. But that's only one half of the equation, of course. We also have the supply side, and everybody, like BHP, is chasing after more reliable uh, uh, production. So welcome to the programme. We'll get you back out to Poland very shortly with that big focus on the Ukraine anniversary, the anniversary of Russia's invasion. Uh, but first, let's focus on HSBC here. The bank has reported fourth quarter profit before tax of $5.2 billion. That's more than 100% higher than a year ago. Revenue at Europe's largest bank increased by 24% in the three months to December, supported by rising interest rates around the world, the lender said it will return to paying a quarterly dividend while considering a special payout after the completion of its Canadian asset sale. Dan spoke with HSBC CEO Noel Quinn and asked how China's reopening and rising interest rates will affect the firm moving forward. I'm really pleased with the results in 2022, uh, growth in adjusted uh, pre-tax profits of 17% and a growth in adjusted revenue of 18% is a good outcome. We kept a tight control on costs, maintaining our cost base to be the growth to be less than 1% and that's a good outcome in a high inflation environment. And I was very pleased with the CET1 print of 14.2%. Um, we generated an incremental 80 basis points of capital in the fourth quarter. Um, I'm also pleased with the return on tangible equity for the full year, 9.9% after the significant item and the loss on sale of France. But before that, an 11.6% return on tangible equity. So that puts us in good position to deliver against our 12% plus roti in 2023 and beyond. But I'd also like to reflect, if I can, Dan, on the last three years and the journey we've been on. Um, 
three years ago, the profitability of the bank looked very different to it does today. Uh, we had good revenue generation from our international franchise, good profit generation in Hong Kong and the UK, but we were losing money elsewhere in the world. Today, three years later, after the transformation, you'll see in our presentation, you know, profit generation in Europe, $2 billion of adjusted profit, $1 billion in the US, $1.8 billion in the Middle East. And outside of Hong Kong and China, uh, we generated over $4 billion of adjusted pre-tax profit from the rest of Asia, with about $900 million from India. So what you've got now is an international franchise with good growth prospects, market-leading transaction banking, underpinned by a broad base of profit generation. That is a radical change from three years ago. And you are now starting to see the fruits of that transformation beginning to pay off. HSBC also announced today that you're considering a special dividend once this $10.1 billion sale of HSBC Canada is completed. A share buyback may also now be in the mix. So, Noel, what information can you give us on that? And why is this the best use of proceeds now? Well, we're seeing uh, good growth prospects for our franchise going forward. Clearly, there are some economic challenges in the near term, but over the medium term, we see our international franchise having good growth prospects in transaction banking, international wholesale banking, wealth management. That allows us to be confident about our 12% uh, plus roti in 2023 and 2024 and beyond. That therefore should generate for us good capital generation capacity, and that will allow us to consider buybacks and dividends at a higher level than we've seen in recent years. But also with a 50% payout ratio, it allows us to have sufficient capital to fund growth as well. So I think it's a combination of growth, but also at the same time, capital generation, facilitating additional dividends and buybacks. And with respect to the special dividends, um, we've got to wait for the transaction to complete. But a first priority use for me and for the board is to make sure that we pay a special dividend of 21 cents subject to regulatory approval and subject to the transaction closing on Canada. But that would be our first use of funds. Thereafter, we'll consider how much should go as additional buybacks over and above our normal buybacks and how much should be retained for use within the business. But we'll make that decision once the transaction closes. No, Quinn there from uh, HSBC then. So there's a lot to like in these numbers, I guess. The fact, as he's pointing out, that some of those business lines that in the past, in the recent past, have been problematic, like North America, like Europe, like the Middle East, they are now starting to deliver profitability. Um, China is reopening. Hong Kong is reopening. Again, that's another tick in the box. But largely, I think the fall in the share price that we've seen overnight in the Asian session seems to be about the fact that they've not lifted one of the key profitability targets here. And that, I think, just points up the uncertainty, actually, around the renaissance and the renewed optimism around this bank. I mean, what do investors want in terms of returns from banks these days? We've seen a whole lot of bank earnings that have rolled through and you've got some banks in the single digits when it comes to return on tangible equity. You've got some in the, the, the teens, the, the mid to higher teens. And now you've got this bank and, you know, going for 12% for as the target and the market wanting more from it. So what is the new normal, I think, is a big debate for the banks at this
this point when it comes to those returns. And if you just think about the amount of interest income, net interest income that is uh, being generated by these banks at this point in the cycle, I mean, HSBC even guiding up to $36 billion this year. That is a truckload of net interest income, isn't it? $36 billion this year versus $32.6 billion last year. So that is still going up thanks to the interest rate cycle. A couple other points here on the dividend, and I think this has been one of the issues Ping An wanted to divide up the uh, Western and the Asian parts of the business because we've got that COVID hangover legacy where the Bank of England said, look, if you're a bank on this side of the world, you need to conserve cash just in case. That was back around the, the start of the pandemic, 2020. And uh, the um, bank said it would effectively restore that dividend to pre-pandemic levels as soon as it could. Here we have the announcement today that you've got the restoration of a quarterly dividend. So that is back on the table now for investors. So we'll pay out that from the start of 2023 this year and uh, hopefully that silences some of the acrimony in the backdrop around big investors and I think investors are probably looking for that yield and we've heard it from a lot of corporates at this point and we've quizzed a few and this type of environment when you've got very safe haven assets paying out very high yields versus where they've been in recent years I think there is pressure on some of these asset classes to try and keep pace at least when it comes to those yields. And I think what you flagged up here is some of the existential risk for shareholders owning HSBC going forward because you've got this very big stakeholder, Ping An, who is sitting um, and trying to drive the car from the rear seat and telling management ultimately what it wants them to do with the bank strategically. But HSBC is either a global bank or it isn't. And I think the message from Noel Quinn is we are going to stick to our knitting, which is to provide global banking services in most geographies and that's the key to a business that has a large presence in Asia but has a legal um, domicile in the UK and is listed in both parts of the world effectively. The share price has been on a tear as we know. We're we're up 45% from the lows back in October. I think it's done something like 20% already uh, year to date against the the FTSE 7% or so here. The question is, is that about the the bank's management or is that about the fact that the banks are all enjoying a renaissance at the moment in share price terms? Just go and have a look at some of the European banks. Uh, My goodness, even go and have a look at uh, Monte de Paschi that we were talking about yesterday, one of those basket case banks in Italy that is also enjoying a renaissance here as finally its books get sorted out and it looks as though it's being lined up for a partner. The question is, You know, is management doing enough at this point to turn HSBC into a bank that has that global spread, can demonstrate higher profits, can work with the Chinese authorities who are increasingly tetchy about that dual presence in Asia and the UK, and ultimately can keep Ping An, this major shareholder, happy? That's an awful lot of plates to spin at the moment whilst promising a buyback, whilst promising a special dividend and whilst hiving off assets. So it's it's a challenging space. Just on the stock market performance, I think this year has been fantastic for all of the European banks fairly broadly. Uh, HSBC has played in that rally. But if you look at the one-year basis, it has not been a great performance. There's been not much in it, uh, pretty much flat over the course of the past year, and that is versus other banks that have gained over that longer time frame. So my point is that we've had a lot of conversations with banking analysts lately, and typically a bank like this, you play for the interest rate story because of the various jurisdictions it plays in from Asian markets, emerging markets, and a bit of safer development. 
developed markets, so you get that pop in the net interest income in this type of environment. However, I think a lot of the analysts are saying, well, you're getting the returns now, you're getting the net interest income from just playing banks that are exposed in developed markets. Mm. There isn't necessarily an advantage for these banks that have big broad-based footprints now globally, that diversification strategy that used to work so well for them. I think that's the problem. You are seeing genuine stock outperformance in banks that are in smaller number of jurisdictions versus some of these large footprint banks. And we were looking at this through the lens of a stand, uh, Standard Chartered, also uh, a Santander in recent times as those results rolled in. I think that's the challenge for a bank like HSB is to push through that narrative at this stage when investors are looking at all types of banks, even European banks that have been so unloved for so many years. The, um, the share prices you pointed out, I, I would just make the point that this bank used to be worth £9 nine pounds a share, you know, um, on the UK quote, uh, if you go back to 2006. And that's the remarkable thing here, that we're getting excited about a share price rally that quite legitimately has helped a lot of people who maybe managed to get in at the lows. But it's still only six quid 20. And if you were one of those unfortunate people that bought in thinking this was a solid long-term play on China, but also gave you the reassurance of a UK-listed organization, then you are sitting there nursing losses. Maybe, you know, you can refocus on the dividend now, but of course the other painful aspect to have having owned one of these banks over the long term is that a lot of them stopped paying dividends uh, post-COVID and post the financial crisis. Yeah, just by way of comparison to my point around pure play, uh, banks here in Europe, uh, ones that are more domestically focused, you'd have to say, I mean, if you look across at Commerce Bank, up 23% so far this year, I'll throw any credit in because it's the best performer in Europe uh, for some of the banks, 41% high year to date, and you compare that to HSBC, 18%. So, I mean, more than double is the percentage performance this year is what you're seeing on Unicredit versus HSBC. So it does tell you about uh, banks in the space. All boats have been floated, but some have obviously outperformed others at this stage. Uh, we've got to move on. Uh, let's talk about uh, manufacturing in Japan. Activity shrank at its fastest pace in 30 months in February, despite posting its largest decline in exports since July 2020. Its services sector grew for a sixth consecutive month as the economy saw gains from its relaxation of coronavirus restrictions. Karen. Jeff, let's take a look at the market action across Asia. Don't forget US markets were shut yesterday for President's Day and we had that choppy handover from the Friday session where we saw a mixed finish for the major indices. The board's here today looking somewhat downbeat. Uh, Cautious air across on Japanese stocks to Hong Kong trading down the most, uh, 1.5 plus percent in the red. A little bit of green too for the Shanghai market, still a continuation of what we saw yesterday with that market was positive. Australian stocks are just gliding south by two-tenths of a percent to the dollar trade. And we have just peeled off some of the highs we've seen in the dollar in recent weeks. The support that has come through on the back of a hot data from the United States that uh, stemmed the decline that we'd seen in the dollar trade. Sterling dollar 120.23 this morning. Euro looking like it is uh, set for a losing month of February. 106.69 at this stage, down a tenth of a percent dollar firmer versus the Japanese yen and also against the Chinese currency. And to what we're seeing on the commodities complex, WTI, Brent both weaker, Brent more so 
1.2% the red, just holding the 83 handle. We've also got a retreat on gold prices. To the opening calls, a European markets yesterday, we had somewhat of a choppy old session, sideways trade for the DAX that was flat, down slightly for the French market, but slightly ahead for the FTSE, above 8,000 points still. And you can see not a huge amount of signaling this morning, just red arrows, but slim direction at this point. To US futures early on, this is how we're setting up for the trade. We are chasing red on those boards as these markets look to resume trade today. It's modestly downbeat, uh, 100 odd points to the downside for the Dow at this hour. Well, the backdrop to all the market and economic action that Jeff and Karen have been talking about is the fact that a hugely significant visit to Europe uh, is being undertaken by the US president. Already a surprise visit to Kiev, which was hugely symbolic. But today we understand the US president, Mr. Biden, is going to make a huge, significant speech for allies and indeed for foes right here uh, in the centre of Warsaw when he makes a speech this afternoon at the Royal Castle here in the centre of town. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. This is so much larger than just Ukraine. It's about freedom and democracy in Europe. It's about freedom and democracy writ large. And, uh, and uh, all the American people, I, I know that uh, so many have been kept uh, Ukrainian people, particularly women and children, in their prayers. See what's happened. They can't fathom the idea of the shelling at night, the shelling of everything from orphanages to to schools, to the like. It's barbaric. And I'm here to show our unwavering support for the nation's independence, their sovereignty, and, uh, and territorial integrity. That was U.S. President Joe Biden during his visit to Kyiv, where he met Ukrainian leader Vladimir Zelensky and pledged to continue supporting Ukraine. President Biden's trip was the first to visit by a sitting U.S. president to Ukraine in almost 15 years and the first time in modern history that a U.S. leader has entered a war zone without an active U.S. military presence. Biden expressed solidarity with Ukraine, promising an additional $500 million worth of military aid and pledging a new package of sanctions targeting the Russian elite this week. The Ukrainian president hailed Biden's visit as, quote, most important, adding it was a symbolic day for the country. Zelensky said the two leaders agreed that the war had to end this year. I want to underline that this unprovoked and criminal Russian war against Ukraine, against Europe and the entire democratic world, must end with the liberation of Ukrainian land from Russian occupation, with solid guarantees of long-term security for our country, Europe and the entire world. Well, President Biden's new military assistance for Ukraine will include anti-tank missiles, air surveillance radars and other artillery. That's in addition to the weapons the U.S. and allies have already provided over the past year. The U.S. has agreed to supply M1 Abrams tanks as well as other weaponry. Germany and the U.K. offered to provide their own battle tanks, the Leopard 2 and the Challenger 2, respectively. The Ukrainian army has also been using the Soviet-era T-72 tanks 
having received additional ones from Poland, uh, the Czech Republic and other former Eastern Bloc nations. Well, President Zelensky says he and Biden also spoke about the potential supply of longer range weapons. Zelensky has been calling on Western countries to provide fighter jets as well as more advanced air missile systems. Steve is out in Warsaw bringing all these threads together for us. Good morning, Steve. Yeah, good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Karen. I I think you guys have have summed up a lot of of the significant factors about this visit already as well. But how hugely significant was that surprise visit to Kiev yesterday? And despite what some of the correspondents here on the ground say as well, nobody had a clue at all that the president was going to do this as well. It was shrouded in secrecy, meticulously planned. And the OK was only given by the president himself, we understand, in the Oval Office on Friday as well. Uh, He took the 10-hour train journey, we understand, from the town of Shemzhou. Uh, you'll recall that's the town that uh, we reported from just after the uh, war started uh, around about 11 and a half months ago. Uh, me and my team were down there and it's just over the border in Poland uh, and then goes via uh, Lviv and then on to Kiev as well. So the president arrived in Kiev around about 10 a.m., uh, left around about 1 a.m., but in the meantime, made some very important points, including, of course, lambasting President Putin uh, about um, what he thought he could achieve one year ago and how wrong he was as well. Uh, he offered, as you mentioned, more weapons and more sanctions for elites and for Russian companies. That will come later in the week. Uh, talking about the US building a coalition a coalition of n- nations as well. And of course, US has played a very important part in that as well. Reaffirming long-term support. Very interesting. The sound you uh, played there or you're talking about was about the need for Zelensky and uh, the, his allies to try and get this war done this year. Well, unless they get the military support, that is going to be potentially an impossibility. And looking forward to meeting uh, members of the Bucharest Nine. Now, the Bucharest Nine is uh, the eastern flank nations of NATO. Let me get this right. Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria. Uh, The Baltic nations are in there. That's Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia. Uh, Plus, you have the Czech Republic and the Slovaks as well. So these are the key nine nations that are pretty much bordering or very close to Russia as well. I'm just going to step out for a second and just show you what's going on behind me today because huge preparations uh, are in place. And as you can see, you've got the the Polish red and white flag, uh, the blue and yellow of Ukraine, and plus the stars and stripes adorning all over uh, the royal castle, the historically significant royal castle uh, here in Warsaw. Because what we understand is going to happen today is that President Biden... Um, later on this evening, early evening, is going to make an absolutely pivotal uh, speech, uh, a pivotal speech for many, many watchers as well. Now, of those watching, well, let's just go through the constituencies, of course. We've already talked about the importance uh, for Ukraine of US support. Tens of billions of dollars of assistance. Uh, a lot of that military have already flowed across the Atlantic to Ukraine as well. Uh, but of course, he's going to make uh, uh, more protestations about support over the longer term. And it's an important message for Mr. Putin who's making his own State of the Nation address today, as Karen mentioned in the headlines, uh, for how the West is in it for the longer term. Because part of Putin's strategy now, having failed with his lightning assault uh, on this country, I beg your pardon, on Ukraine, uh, one year ago, was to try and wear down the West. And I think Putin... um, 
uh, Biden's response today is going, no, we're in this for long term as well. Also a message to other erstwhile foes and those who uh, the US hasn't got on board, the likes of the South that just hasn't backed the West in this one, and the Chinese who may be thinking about their own um, potential um, uh, military actions and geopolitical actions going forward. And of course, notably, uh, talking about the tensions over Taiwan. For allies as well, we know that within NATO, there are very much two different groups as well. The more hawkish nations, including Poland, and those including Herr Scholz and Herr Mac- uh, Monsieur Macron, who still want to try and find a way to work with Mr. Putin. And Mr. Zelensky has been telling uh, Mr. Macron, you're wasting your time on that front as well. We just can't deal with this man as well. But very important for Mr. Biden, I think, in the next 24 hours is this speech and how it plays out at home. Because as, as Lindsey Graham, of course, on the other side of the House, has been talking about, uh, it's going to be an absolute pivotal speech for Mr. Biden, not only on his foreign policy, not only on getting congressional support, but also laying out how he stands and how he sees the world going forward as he potentially makes uh, a, a run at a second term as U.S. president. Steve, um, a topic that we've discussed at length here, uh, and that is the corruption in Ukraine. And I'm aware that with President Biden there and the pomp and the fanfare, this is perhaps one of those issues that will be swept a little bit to the sidelines here. But um, you see in USA Today, it's a headline story. Where is all this money going? Is it being accounted for? Does there need to be a special office of accounting representation provided by the US on the ground in Ukraine to see how the funds are spent? Are you seeing any ground broken on this issue? Uh, I'm not, but I think it's a stunningly important issue, and it's an important issue that I've been looking at for nine years, well before this current phase of the war. Look, when I first went to Ukraine uh, in 2014, and it was literally, gosh, nine years ago almost, um, within a week or so, that I went there. And and I interviewed a hell of a lot of important people at the time, from the the, the president-to-be, Mr. Poroshenko, the prime minister, Mr. Yatsenyuk, but also the man who was to become the mayor of Kiev, who's more famously known as the world champion boxer Vitaly Klitschko before, of course, uh, the, the current phase of the war began. And I spoke to Klitschko, who had a wonderfully affluent life outside of Ukraine. And I said, why do you want to come back? Why do you want to be a politician? You've done it all. You've achieved enormous amounts. And he said, because I'm fed up with my country looking to the rest of the world as the most corrupt place on the planet, from the top down, from the bottom up as well. So you're absolutely spot on. And the USA Today is absolutely spot on that historically, uh, and again, I can't comment on where some of the money's going that's been uh, funding this war and some of the military's going, but the fact of the matter is, there is a perception, and I think a lot of it is very realistic, that that Ukraine has had a huge amount of corruption problems over there. They've got their own oligarchs who, there are huge questions about how they got their wealth as well. The oligarch isn't just a Russian phenomenon. But you are totally correct in saying that people have ignored that issue whilst there is perhaps the bigger issue uh, of the war against Russia. And, and absolutely, there, there has to be accountability because if the Americans and the West and the rest of the supporters of Ukraine are going to trust that nation to build uh, a nation out of the ruins of this war as well, they're going to need confidence that corruption isn't just going to erode uh, that support, isn't going to just erode and waste all that money as well. So it is something that hasn't been talked about a 
lot over the last year, but it needs to be talked about, especially, dare I say, amongst EU partners as well, who are potentially looking at closer links going forward and, of course, uh, with aspirations of Ukraine to want to eventually be in the EU. I think it's an absolutely key topic, but one that keeps getting perhaps pushed forward a little bit, kicked into the long grass while the prevalence of the war is absolutely key. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.